Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the John Davies Podcast. We are back here, episode 17, on this 28th of October. I want to apologize for the recent period of inactivity. Just been hanging out with the family and, you know, spending time away from the internet, from everything. Doing a little research as well. I decided that it would be better to make more time in between the episodes to give myself a little bit of time to, you know, conduct the appropriate amount of research to make interesting episodes. Because I, I, um, I'm almost solely based on independent research and things that I find out for myself, so I have to do a little bit of that to make an interesting podcast. Hopefully hopefully these will be a little bit better since that I've taken a little time off and gathered some more interesting stories, I think. So we'll get into a few of them here today. Oh man, there's just something about... See, this is one thing that I know living with my parents, and I love it. I love them to death. I love living with them. But there was something that about being around your your parents and a a grandchild, right? Because my sister's a little bit older than me, and she has uh, she has a family, but she has a younger son, and it's just something about that that is just so beautiful to watch and and take in. It's it's almost like it reminds you of how you experience life again for the second time when you have children. You get to experience things that you you saw growing up from new eyes and relive them. It's it's almost like a second take at things. It's something that I'm very excited for. My girlfriend and I just recently had a pregnancy scare. And uh, I was honestly worried that I was going to be a father, which is one of the other reasons why I wasn't as active. Because, you know, I can't imagine me as a father. You know, I'm still... I'm still playing The Witcher and drinking Woodruff, you know, I, 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 I can't, Woodruff, Woodford, Woodford Reserve Whiskey, folks, it is possibly the cause of our pregnancy scare that we just had, but it is an amazing whiskey, and I cannot recommend it more, drink it up, be responsible, it, it tastes like a liquid pretzel, it is delicious whiskey, and it tastes good going down, and it's only, I think it only goes for like 30 bucks an eighth. Uh, I don't really know what I'm talking about with with uh, whiskey, but I like it. Maybe it's awful. You might hate it, but I like it. And it, it caused my girlfriend and I to get very drunk, and we uh, we probably made some some rash decisions, in which we regretted immediately afterwards. But I don't necessarily think it's bad to have children when you're not expecting them you just don't want them to be starving you i mean i think that child if you're a responsible person having a child is like a is like steroids for getting your shit together because it's if there's no better inspiration if you're a good person thinking about other people if you're empathetic if there's no better inspiration for getting your shit together than you've created another life that you now have to provide for then you're never going to be motivated so I was honestly a little bit excited for that, but it turned out to be a false flag. Her pregnancy test came up negative, so we will continue planning for now. It's going to be so weird someday, though, just have like a mini me running around. I can't wait. A lot of my friends are, are anti-children, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. Not necessarily anti-children, but they're not going to have a child or ch- child's children themselves. And I think that's... A reasonable perspective to have, especially today. I'm, there's kids everywhere. There's 
there's child-oriented things together. A lot of people uh, everywhere, people are burnt out of childhood. I think a lot of adults are encouraged to stay in childhood well into their adult years nowadays. But, I mean, people are burnt out of that. And I, I think that in a sense, what we're seeing in America today, it could be, it could be young people staying children into their 20s, maybe even into their 30s. It's a very weird phenomenon to witness. And, you know, people have been talking about it on the internet for a while. But I've personally experienced it. Back when I was unemployed, and even when I was working at Regal, I didn't really feel like an adult. I never did. Even when I turned 20, I was I was feeling still in that state of mind that I was in in high school. You know, I didn't really have that much responsibility. I just went to work and I, you know, could smoke weed on the job with my friends. It was just basically like I was going to hang out with my friends at a place that wasn't even really work. We were just watching entertainment all day. We were consuming all the new movies. Uh, we were at the mall, which is a hub of, you know, consumerism. It was pretty insane how it, how long that kept me into that state. And I also think that going to community college did too, because it was just like high school. I was learning about the same things I did in high school. I didn't plan out my community college very well. I was one of those dumb people that just basically went for, you know, a fifth year of high school. For me, it was a sixth. I never really fully figured out what I was doing there. But it, it just reminded me so much of it. And, you know, maybe had I treated it differently, I would have had more success. But it's I think a lot of young people nowadays are encouraged to stay into that that younger mindset where they're dependent um they're whimsical imaginative because it saddens a lot of people to grow up and that's one of that's one of mankind's eternal struggles has been the loss of the that of that innocence and uh whimsical imagination that you have as a child growing up into an, an adult I've witnessed that change in so many of my friends and I don't necessarily think it's bad I just think that it shows a, a certain grit for some people we all graduate some point from our days on the playground into into adult things and some people mark that change early and are excited for it and other people hang on to it and I, th I think American society today encourages more people to hang on to those feelings of childhood uh especially in our movies and in our in our music and in our art i think we're seeing a societal longing to be kids again i remember there was a very profound moment in my life where an ex of mine um and i were standing on the porch we were dating at the time and we were about to go to uh, one of my niece's volleyball games back when she had a little stint in high school when she played volleyball and i just remember her looking over at the neighbor's kids playing in their yard they were playing some kind of ball game, and they they just looked so happy and free. And she just looked over at me, and she said, I wish I could be a kid again. And it was the first time I'd heard someone say that and honestly mean it in their life. And it was uh, quite a sad thing to witness. Not sad on her behalf, but it was sad because I agreed with her. I agreed with her. When, when you're a child, you don't have to deal with this complex world to to a large degree that we deal with, even if you're in a horrible household, uh, like some of my friends have been raised in, you know, when I would go see my buddy Jaden, back when, back when he was really struggling, when he was, their family was struggling when they were young, you know, he was, he, we, we always completely distract ourselves from that with, 
you know, games that we made up and, uh, you know, video games and just conversation. It's when you're a child, it's very easy to ignore a lot of the uh, dragons, so to speak, that are nesting near your villages, as Jordan Peterson would say. I think a lot of people today want to do that. They never want to tame their their dragons, going full in on the Jordan Peterson references here, and they never want to. They never want to clean themselves up, so in a sense, people stay children forever, nowadays. But I also think that a lot of people on the internet that accuse people of staying children forever need to look at their own lives. Like, if you're on Reddit, posting. As much as I loved this subreddit while I was still up, posting a consumed product about some guy who's a, you know, has a wife and his own apartment and just collects, you know, Funko Pops, which I'll admit are annoying as hell and I hate them. It's just, it's just tasteless. They're tasteless. But if you're complaining about that, what kind of life do you really have? Obviously not too much better. Now I agree, it's fun to make, to a certain degree, make fun of people that over obsess over dumb shit like that. But there has to be a point when you draw the line and say, hey, maybe I'm pathetic. Maybe I'm the one that, that needs to, to get their shit together. And I think I hit that a long, time, a long time ago. I would say last year to a certain degree. Last year was when I just sort of realized after our uh, family trip to Poughkeepsie, New York, where we, where we hiked the Catskill Mountains, I just realized, hey, man, there's more to this world than than just, you know, hanging into your room all the time, playing video games and, and disassociating. There's so much more. You should go out and, and explore it and try to work hard so you can do more. It sounds it's like the same old, same old story, and I know it's a very generic-sounding tune, but there's really no better way to get your life together than just to realize that. And like I was saying, with uh, having a child, it's like the ultimate shot in the arm to get, to get you back. Just a shot in the absolute, just a shot in the arm, you know, to get you back to reality and working and, and providing. Because that's if you're a person with empathy, empathy, you're gonna realize that, that has to be done. I think modern society just robs people of empathy, and I don't think that you should be overly empathetic towards people because that can leave you vulnerable towards attack. But modern society creates a situation in which it is not only unprofitable to be empathetic, but it is also, it's only valuable if you can record it and put it out there for people to see. So it's some kind of like a personal status gain. A lot of people are only empathetic, I think, nowadays to the extent that they can show it off and show how, how good of a person they are. It's, in modern society... It, it's, it rewards us for not being empathetic, for, for uh, breaking the ties of our family and, and going out on our own and maybe moving across the country. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. It can definitely help. But modern society, progressivism encourages us to leave behind our elders and to not talk to them and to say that their views are, you know, outdated, archaic and hateful. Ah, we live in America nowadays that's demonizing traditionalism. It's it's saying you don't... I was listening to an episode of The Portal. This is where I, I got sort of this idea from. Uh, it's Eric Weinstein's podcast. And this was a fantastic episode. Um, basically, though, you nowadays, mo the modern progressivist movement sets the tone 
for to the tune of it sets the tone to the tune of everyone's guilty that that engaged in a certain form of of behavior in the past but not everybody's going to get punished so then your calling card can come due at any point at any point your your calling card can come due so anything that you've done in the past any racist quote unquote tweets that you made when you were 12 or you know an Xbox Live hot mic that somebody maybe recorded can be now used as a weapon against you 20 years later who you were probably a totally different person at this point and that's just scratching the surface of what of what it is I mean it's very it's it's ever changing I'll say it's ever changing the the modern progressive left's the modern progressive left's pursuit of this of this future of this you know completely pc reality there it's ever changing uh they the things that are considered unacceptable are always growing and the modern left it, I, don't, I don't know when enough will be enough no one has expressed that in the modern left there's just there's things that you wouldn't even have thought like aunt jemima three years ago, would have ever been considered racist. There was a time when Aunt Jemima was racist. Like the brand, the logo, it looked horrible. It looked like a caricature of a mammy. But the new Aunt Jemima doesn't look anything like that. It, it just looks like a southern black woman. I, I don't understand when enough will be enough and when it will be okay. I mean, there's barbecue sauce. Uh, I think it's called Uncle Ray's. It just has a cool-looking black dude. It looks like he'd make you great great wings on the front of it. I don't understand. Is that racist, too? It's, it's, it, it, it boggles my mind, and it scares me to think about when it, it will actually be enough is enough. Shit, soon the Jolly Green Giant's going to be racist if it keeps going on. <laughs> soon the Jolly Green Giant will be fucking racist somehow. Once we make contact with the aliens... That'll be seen as race branding. Hmm. I mean, traditionalism is so scorned that soon buying DVDs from Netflix is going to be seen as a hate crime just because it was an old way. People still rent DVDs from Netflix. Over 2 million. I was reading an article. Over 2 million people every year still rent their DVDs from Netflix. That's crazy to think about. That's just one of those things that a lot of people forget, I think. Netflix actually started out as a rental service. Its streaming platform didn't even launch, I think, until around 2007 or so. So before that, Netflix was all DVD rentals. And there's a lot of people that actually still don't stream as their main way of watching things. I mean, hell, my parents still watch most of the stuff on TV that they watch through uh, Antietam Cable. And... Young people, I think, just do not watch TV. I don't think that young people are going to be paying for cable. We're going to see cable companies as the next major industry to really suffer as, as we go into this next century. And they, they're going to have to switch to broadband. They're going to have to find ways to, to accommodate Internet as well as cable. And Antietam Cable's done an okay job of that uh, moving forward. But young people just do not watch TV. It's something that we're not interested in. I know very few people my age that watch TV. And just look to, like take the debates, for instance. 
Yes, I could watch it on TV and have it be interrupted by commercials, you know, maybe. I don't know if it was or not. It might not have been, but I could watch it on TV on a major news network. Or I could just wait one day, watch it on YouTube, and then even get access to comments about the same debate from people watching it. And I could actually pause it when it gets on YouTube if I wait one day. I could pause it, take notes, and then skip to a different part. That's what I did with the first two debates. So, I think that the young people are just not going to be watching TV as we get older. And it's going to be one of those industries that, that you see have to evolve. But then again, it's always gonna, there's always going to be holdouts and there's always going to be people that stay behind. That's like the rule of technology, essentially. There's always going to be a new technology that completely changes the game. People are going to jump on board and be very successful with it. And people who are already successful, maybe, or people who aren't successful in clinging to the past are going to cling to the old ways. I mean, that's how I feel about self-driving cars. You could totally eliminate accidents on the highways if you switched totally to self-driving cars. But I, I don't think that there's anybody that wants to give up the freedom of being able to drive wherever you want to without telling a computer where to go. And I don't. I'm one of those old heads, you know. I'm one of those people that you'll never convince that not driving the car is better. I like, you know, some people just like driving. They like the the fluidity of the motions that you go through and the, the headspace it puts you in. And you're never going to be able to take that from some people. I guess some people like streaming. Some people like ordering their DVDs through video stores or even still through Netflix. It's just, it's, it's, it's funny how humans work. Because humans are designed to produce technology, in a sense. We are designed to innovate. Uh, people like Andrew Scholes, uh, who I want to... Sorry, Aaron Schultz, so, who I want to talk about a little bit next, who I was researching over the past couple days, are going to innovate. And if you look at something like the internet, there was a vast, vast web of tech giants that came out of the Silicon Valley... Or not necessarily the Silicon Valley. Now they now they inhabit this. They didn't come come from there though. These these innovators and pioneers came from the dorm rooms around America. Colleges uh, were fascinated with computers from a young age. I mean, these people were were average ordinary people. I mean, like the Mark Zuckerbergs, the uh, Jack Dorseys, the Bill Gates of the world. Bill Gates a little bit older out of that generation, but the, but Aaron Schwartz is very much like that. Uh, he was actually he was one of the people who founded Reddit back in the day. It's a very popular website. I use it a lot to find stories and articles to get into. Um, but Aaron was roommates with uh, Alexis O'Neon, who's another founder of Reddit. Uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. And Steve Huffman as well. Those two guys are more well known as they've uh, been at that, the head of Reddit. If you, if you remember, a few months ago, Alexis was actually the guy that said that he would voluntarily step down from the board of directors at Reddit in order for a person of color to step up. So if that's not the ultimate cuck, I don't know what else is. But uh, Reddit was born around 2005 out of, the, uh, out, of, out of the remnants of another project that these guys were working on. And it's... It, it went with it went to Condé Nast Productions or Publications, not Productions, and that's a publisher uh, that was responsible for a couple other of uh, websites. It was under the firm, not a bug, and Swarz was more involved with that rather than the actual site Reddit itself. 
Uh, but today, Reddit has 138,000 active communities and over 330 million users. So it was, it was a very successful website. And Reddit has also been able to consistently turn investments into profits. Uh, there was an investment not too long ago that they turned into like um, like a billion plus dollar investment. I think it was like $330 million into $3 billion. So Reddit is very good at turning around investments. But uh, Schwartz was forced to part ways with the company early on. And there's there's a lot of mystery behind his parting ways with the company. And there's some speculation that he ran afoul of the viewers, of the uh, his, his, his friends, of the of the community itself, but I, it's it's very up in the air as to why he left Reddit. Now, he's a very busy guy. You know, afterwards, he was involved with a lot of hacktivism and stuff like that. And so I think that it's definitely possible that he had his own agenda and, and wanted to do things other than Reddit. He wasn't really even that involved with the site itself, per se. He was more in the firm, not a bug. But, um, yeah, he chose to leave around 2006 or so, I want to say. It, what, when was it? Uh, but, um, yeah, 2006, he chose to part ways with the company. He was up to a lot of crazy stuff, though, afterwards. I mean, in 2008, this guy downloaded 2.7 million documents from federal courts on a system called PACER. And he basically used uh, algorithms and applications to download court files, which were technically public domain. So he didn't break any crimes, even though they tried as hard as they could to pin them with something. And he gave them to Carl Malamud, who started a public organization called uh, publicresearch.org. And basically it was like access to court records, cases, and proceedings. And Schwartz fought hard to to maintain his innocence through that and he downloaded um 2.7 million documents now malmood actually had an interesting movement himself uh where he encouraged people to go and download these documents this was in the late 2000s i believe uh vaguely have memories of this because i was just a kid at the time but i remember the the movement getting around and you're basically go supposed to go and download these files to these these seven they go to these 17 libraries and download these files uh so that his website could take them on and i think there was like a small like 60 cent fee or something like that uh but in 2011 schwarz did something that was even more insane he was actually arrested at mit breaking and entering into a closet he was actually a researcher there at the time so he had a card a key card to get in nobody let him in um but he was running the same type of game on the MIT database of academic research. And those of you that have gone to college or even a community college like myself for a few years would probably recognize the name JSTOR. And basically what happened was, was Schwartz actually broke into this, this room and tried to download files off of JSTOR. And he, it was, it was millions of files. It was over a million files off of JSTOR. And he wanted to, he wanted to give the information to the public for free. And basically he was arrested and faced with 35 years in prison and over a million dollars in fines for just a varying degree of charges that racked up. So, I mean, this guy risked everything 
to break into a private you know area of MIT into a private server download millions of files from JSTOR and he was just going to release them uh to the public on the internet that would have absolutely destroyed higher education because so much of higher education is based on this you know smoke behind the mirror type thing it's it's all the wizard of oz it's all the grand professor sitting behind the mirror and you know conducting things from behind the scenes there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, paywall to higher education and this would have made it possible for just any Joe Schmo sitting at his desk to access academic files. So uh, Schwartz, he died a hero. He went on trial, and unfortunately, in two years later, in 2013, after denying a plea deal for six months when faced with 35 years, uh, unfortunately, he hung himself in his, in his apartment room. No suicide note was ever found on his body. And I'm not a conspiracy guy. You know, I, I am a guy that I like listening to him, but I don't I don't know that I believe in too many of them. But no suicide note. This one's this one rings to me a lot like the Gary Weber suicide. The journalist that exposed the uh, Contra movement and the government's connections with the with them. This rings to me a lot like that. No suicide note found. And the government afterwards pursued an aggressive disinformation campaign to label him as a felon, although the, he had never been tried. The government wants you to think this guy's a bad person. It's a lot like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. They want you to think that they're bad people because what they're doing is trying to give you the full story. What they did is, what, what, this, what this young man did is try to give you the full story. He looks a lot like the uh, grinning, uh, like, the, uh, it's, it's actually kind of crazy. The younger uh, version of this guy looks like that MAGA, grinning MAGA hat kid. I don't know if uh, if that's enough for people to remember, but the, the, the kid that had the smug grin and was grinning at the Native American dude who was beating the tambourine in his face, that uh, that guy, they, they look a lot alike, and I shared a picture of him on my Instagram, <laughs> and I, I hope people didn't think that that, that was... That was who that was. Aaron Schwartz is a is a true internet hero. I'm sorry I called you Andrew at first, Aaron. R.I.P. He's in he's in the Internet Hall of Fame, and he's a straight savage of history. Straight savage. I mean, there's some other savages in history though. We're gonna definitely talk about a lot more of them on the podcast. There's pl- that's one thing history provides the opportunity for great people to step up and do amazing things. And it's so interesting to go back and look at at people who live their lives courageously. I think it's inspiring in a lot of ways, especially the the work that that Aaron did. The listen, I mean, there's nothing more important in this world than than education and knowledge, and 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 learning the right way. And academic files are the pretty much the highest grade that you could possibly get you know, academic journals, databases. This guy tried to make them available for everyone. And I just think that's worth commending someone for. In this world of faulty heroes, false idols, and just plastic personalities, I think that it's important to have somebody that was willing to risk their their freedom, their youth, their livelihood, just to help and spread information. There's plenty of people out there like that. And those are the people that can grab history by the reins 
and direct the courses. Those are the people that have the power to change the sales. And very much, a lot of the pioneers of the internet were like that too. There's another guy I want to talk about on the podcast sometime soon. Um, I haven't done too much research into him, but he's the founder of 4chan. His name is Moot. Well, it's his internet name. I want to do more research into him and talk about him a little bit as well. But these pioneers of the internet were were born just like us now of, of you know, they were just college students at the right time. They rode the waves of, uh, of change. They saw the new technology and they adopted it. It's a lot like what we were talking about earlier, how there's always going to be holdouts, but there's going to be people that, that take to new technology and use it to get ahead. And the only way to truly gain access to the, the upper echelons of society is to have access to the best technology and the most resources, too. I mean, look at freaking Epstein. Epstein was able to run an entire pedophile empire based on his resources. There's no other way around that. Like he, There's no way Epstein does what he does if he's not loaded with cash and, and, and able to exert tremendous influence. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell, her, uh, her deposition, apparently, that has over 400 pages with individual, uh, mentions individuals, uh, who had dealings, uh, or were possibly involved in these heinous crimes, just, uh, just got released the other day. And the, the thing to remember in any trial against Ghislaine is that Virginia Guffrey is the key accuser. And she, she has the ability to point the finger at Prince Andrew, George Mitchell, Alan Dershowitz. These are some big names that were thrown around. Uh, a lot of people that, that that talk about the Epstein conspiracy, I don't think, are really following what's actually going on uh, with the actual accusers. But Virginia Guffrey is the key accuser. Uh, Sigrid McCauley is, Guffer, is uh, Gifford's attorney. Did I say Guffrey? Oh my god, it's probably, it's probably Gifford. I don't even know, but um, he said that the uh, the public should should know what's in this, and it's only a small part of the evidence they have as a whole, which could be a lawyer trick, just to uh, get the other side to give up more than they have. But he's he's convinced that there's an entire big network to this. But rich people have total access to things like pedophile rings, uh, drugs, weapons, basically anything. We live in a world where money talks, and capital is the most important resource resourced in today's world people need to understand that in order to have influence in today's society in order to have basically any say in the way that things go capital is the only thing that speaks and i don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with that i mean the wealthy certainly have always run the country but these these rings these secret societies these vast networks of of connections and influences like the bohemian grove it's it's all just so toxic. It rots away the core of the integrity of our society. Uh, in her book, The Proud Tower, Barbara Tuckman talks a lot about how England had a dedicated ruling class at the helm of the uh, at, at the helm of the twentieth century, and it really helped them going into that. They had a class of people who were former nobles who had that sense of public duty, and America, I think, had that at first too. In the founding fathers, the founding fathers were very for the most part, noble people in society. They were public servants who who weren't, you know, uh, partial to 
to secret business societies and, and, you know, backstabbing and, you know, keeping the public on, on a leash. But America was, America was very susceptible to that at the turn of the 1800s. And when we entered the Gilded Age, that really took off. Secret societies became a huge problem and it never really went away. When the Gilded Age came around, that's when America was sort of looted by these uh, capitalist plunderers. And I'm not saying that it's all necessarily bad, because it certainly helped to create the society we live in today, to a large extent. But that's where all this comes from. These, these pedophile rings, this, these lifestyles, uh, these you know rich people living ways in which other people could only dream, private islands. That's where, all, that's where stuff like that comes from. It's the Gilded Age. And... The fact that America didn't have a dedicated ruling class. And I think in Europe, because of the EU, you saw a lot of the same things start to happen. You saw a lot of the erosion of the national pride. And folks, when you get rid of nationalism, you have to replace it with something. There has to be something. Because nationalism exists for a reason. People are highly segmented based on their countries. And I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing to express a little bit of nationalism. As long as it's healthy, and we do it in, in, in a way that helps us to relate to other countries. And maybe that's impossible. You know, I'm willing to op- open myself up to all the, dis- the possible points of discussion here. But I personally think that a little bit of nationalism and patriotism is good. Because it helps you to have a cause to fight for. A common, a common entity to rally around so that these fucking... Wealthy plunderers can't just come in and direct the narrative like they have in America. I mean, what you see in America today is essentially just the media telling people what to be upset about on a regular basis and sort of directing a narrative. I mean, the entire... uh, Another thing that Weinstein talks about on this podcast, the entire narrative of fake news around 2016 did not even exist until after or very close to near the election. It was entirely fabricated it's 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 not something that even really exists and it's it's basically something that's used to control public perception and it's it's gives people something to base their their minds around and their their discussions at the dinner table around while the real shady shit goes on behind the scenes fake news is nothing i mean the news has always been an organization's spin on current events it's up to you to look at the actual event itself that's going on. And I think that we as Americans have gotten lazy, especially progressives, um, in a sense that we don't want to look at the full issue. We just want to look at what we think would help us. It's sort of like if you were running an experiment and it worked eight times out of ten, but the two times out of ten that it didn't, you just threw under the rug and, and didn't even consider. You couldn't do that, especially if you were in something critical like a medical trial. So I would argue that the government is every bit as critical as that and that we need to start looking at at issues with more nuance. Uh, Fake news is not nuanced whatsoever. Like, just to to talk about fake news, it's not nuanced. The stories that CNN reports on are real. They're just spun a certain way. The stories that Tucker Carlson reports on are real. They're just spun a certain way. You just have to look at spin. Even Alex Jones brings up real issues on his show. I mean, they're spun in an absolutely insane way, which is one of the reasons why I actually like the show. That's why I like Tucker Carlson. I like to watch my news with, uh, you know, big-breasted girlies and 
AK-47s and explosions. I'd rather have my news that way. But what you have to understand is the news is just a platform for different issues to, to come to your attention. And it's really up to you to look into them objectively and not take everything that the guy on TV is saying as fact. That's not the news trying to indoctrinate you. That's just you being a fucking idiot. So yeah, we got Maxwell. Um, I'm excited for Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk 2077 is going to be really good. Uh, I think the release date just got set for December, if I'm not wrong. My buddy sent me yesterday. I'm going to look it up real quick. But uh, for those of you that don't know, Cyberpunk is actually based on a tabletop game. I actually just learned this the other day. But let's see. The release date, 21 days. December 10th, Cyberpunk 2077. It's going to be amazing. Um, but it's based on a table tabletop game, and I just want to read off what the uh, themes of this game are. So basically, you have the collapse of the global superpowers and the rise of mega corporations. Sound familiar? The, the the death of nationalism is replaced by the rise of these these super super giant corporations that that secretly control everything and spin public narrative. Uh, you have disastrous famine, radio a radioactive Middle East. Presumably, it's been nuked. Humanity lives in cities in a dystopian future that offer protection from this harsh world where the outside is uninhabitable. We as humans are totally susceptible to fascist-style governments whenever we are facing crises, like the coronavirus, like 9-11. We as humans are totally susceptible to like like these like these oppressive governments and it's something that we need to realize as we move forward uh in this universe bio in, in the cyberpunk universe bioengineering has resulted in rapid development of accessible body modifications and you can basically change your body at will gender is you know obviously fully looked at from the perspective of progressivism it's a thing of the past and there's actually people that suffer from a sort of like shock from this they call it techno shock and it's the inability to cope with a world that has synthetic tissue and circuits and binary and just like these it's 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 basically just like a side effect of living in a digital a mechanized society it takes uh, a lot of influence from the work of ray kurzweil and the idea of the singularity in human machine interface uh programmer ray kurzweil and scientist uh, actually has this theory that he can upload his soul into a machine when he dies and sort of become one uh, with that and, and continue to express consciousness through a computer interface. And uh, Bioshock, or Jesus, Bio Bioshock, Cyberpunk takes a lot of influence from that concept, I think. Uh, Night City is where the game is going to take place, and it's sort of like a hybrid between LA and San Francisco. It's one of the mega cities that uh, appear. It's just interesting how close to our reality that cyberpunk is. And this came out in uh, 1990. It's interesting how close Walter John, or sorry, not Walter John Williams. Um, what was the guy that, that invented it? Mike Pondsmith. It's interesting how close Mike Pondsmith got with this tabletop game to the reality that we live in today, where you have corporations that are secretly pushing agenda from commercials, from 
policy, you know, from just influence through Washington. And you have mega cities rising in 30 or so years, I think, uh, It'll be pretty much one long city from Washington through Philadelphia up to Boston. And then, I mean, in, on the West Coast, you basically, California, you have Los Angeles and San Diego are basically one city at this point. Mega cities are on the rise and disastrous famines, plagues like the coronavirus, pandemics like the coronavirus um, are creating are creating a desire amongst us for safety and we're willing to give up liberty and freedom for that safety and how about bioengineering and how about technology all these other things techno shock you're seeing a lot of people with symptoms i think of something like techno shock nowadays where it's just too much to handle with this this reality where we live in where we're so detached from the physical world and so embedded in this this singularity with technology I think that ultimately, though, it's that's the future of humanity. The, the future of humanity ultimately is 100% fusion with technology. It was something that I think we were meant to do. But one thing that I worry is that the elite are going to try to control it. Uh, the elite, I believe, will try to control access to the bioengineering that we see in cyberpunk and, and keep it for themselves. And this sort of like Elysium-like concept. Elysium is another interesting science fiction movie that sort of plays ball with like what we're doing right what what's going on right now in reality. Uh, you have a society in which the rich have literally left Earth. The rich have left Earth and they leave they leave us behind on this dying planet to protect for ourselves. And I want to—I just want to take away from the idea that technology is humanity's great gift to 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 the world. That's what we do. Technology—we create things, we build things, like I was saying earlier. But technology also has the amazing potential and the terrible potential to both oppress and liberate. Slavery was on was on its way out of the South when the cotton gin was created. And that was created to liberate. It was created to end slavery. But it just made it more profitable and made it last for another 50 to so or so years. And technology has an enormous potential to enslave, to oppress. And if we don't protect our system of government and get good leaders in office, we risk running that very same gauntlet. We risk becoming the breakaway society. And we're going to be on the opposite end, believe me. You know, I'd be, I'd be down here on the planet. I'm not going to Elysium. My family isn't poor, but we aren't, we aren't going to Elysium. And so I would encourage everyone to look at what access the government has to technology. I mean, look at the coronavirus cures. That, like, I mean, the experimental coronavirus cures are only accessible to the elite. And when people think of healthcare, like not having access to healthcare... In a lot of ways, that resembles it as well because we have amazing technology to repair human bodies nowadays, but we, we, we either can't or won't give it to everyone. And if it's we won't, then we're living in a society much like uh, Neil uh, Blomkamp's Elysium, 
So I would encourage everyone to watch that. It was a, a critical failure, but the best movies always seem to be nowadays. So definitely encourage everyone to watch Elysium. And look into the concept of the breakaway society, because I think it's something that you can definitely see in a lot of places. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the uh, podcast today, folks. Uh, I think it was a pretty interesting one. I hope everybody enjoyed listening, and we're going to be back at you maybe even tomorrow since I have the day off. I might, I might, there were some uh, topics I didn't get into today that I didn't, didn't think would really fit into the theme of the episode. So maybe we'll get into those tomorrow. If I have time, I will do it. Uh, if not, I'll see you in a few days. Everybody take it easy.